Good afternoon and welcome to Stories in Public Health. Uh, today uh, I'm at the University of New South Wales and I have uh, my lovely podcast assistant Paige with me. You want to say hi to everyone? Hi everyone. And today we're thr- thrilled to be interviewing um, Associate Professor Ben Harris-Roxas. Um, he's, as I mentioned, an Associate press- Professor here at the University of New South Wales. He did a Bachelor of Social Work followed by a Master of Policy and Applied Social Research um, and then he did a PhD uh, which he can hopefully tell us a bit about today and his areas of interest are health service planning, health equity and evaluation and he's also, I'd like to ask him um, today a bit about um, a partnership that he has worked on or is currently working on with South um, Southeastern Sydney Local Health District. Welcome, thank you for joining us Ben. Hi. Uh, maybe we could start um, with so something you've done recently that you're quite excited about, some research you'd like to get out there? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, some of the stuff that I'm most excited about, I really had only peripheral involvement with, but I think it's important work that was done through the centre I work at, um, which was essentially looking at water pipe use amongst Arabic-speaking communities in uh, the St George region, which is part of the South East Sydney Local Health District. So essentially some colleagues here, before I joined the centre, initiated this work and I was only peripherally involved in it. Um, but I think it's really interesting. It looks at it work with these communities to conduct interviews and focus group discussions in language as well as in English. Um, and it had some really interesting findings, basically unpacking some of the, the cultural dimensions working for and against water pipe use. So um, the reason I'm interested in it is that I think it's a solid piece of work, but also where I live in Western Sydney, I actually pass five shops that sell and uh, you know encourage the use of water pipes um, on the way to work. So. What, what is a water pipe? Does everyone know? Sorry. Yeah, this is a good question. Okay, <laughs> good. Um, so water pipes are essentially like a, you might know them as hookah or shisha. Oh, the big um, pipes. The pipes yeah. that are sort of used to smoke tobacco traditionally with like in the context of Middle Eastern uh, yeah. cultures and communities. But in Australia and also overseas, places like America, the popularisation as as part of a broader cafe culture means that the use is spreading beyond those traditional communities of use. Um, There's, uh, you know, of course, strong and long cultural traditions of the use, but the context of use is changing. Um, We're seeing a lot of uh, potential targeting, particularly overseas, of younger age groups. Um, and the consolidation, I guess, as part of the broader, you know, buy-up of different tobacco-related industries by um, larger tobacco groups, that a lot of Middle Eastern uh, manufacturers of tobacco for water pipe use have been acquired by larger, more multinational um, oh. tobacco industries. So that's Sneaky. the sort of broader context. In the, in the, the St George context, what well, essentially it, found was that you know there's a it's regarded as a relatively safe practice there's a lot of um, beliefs I think uh, safe to say mistaken about a lack of harm Um, there's actually some aspects of cultural reinforcement because it's seen as something that holds the people in culture um, that this is a safe activity for younger people to be doing and preferable to things like alcohol or other mm. drug use and so on. So it was really interesting to sort of find out what's going on in terms of the attitudes and perceptions of the use of water pipe in that broader context. So um, we just recently had a essentially a workshop to say, okay, this is where we've ended up with the research and brought together some people from 
the ministry, from uh, several local health districts, from the Commonwealth, Department of Health, and some other agencies to say, you know, this is what we think we found, what are some of the implications? So I think that's why it was front of mind when you asked that question, because even though I didn't really drive it and can't claim that as my own work, it was a really nice piece of research that I think highlighted a, an under-recognised issue, one that poses a big issue for public health from both yeah, health protection, health promotion angles, but also has that nice feedback loop. You could start to see that yeah, it was in, yeah, an informing practice and the policy sort of responses. So, um, yeah, so I think that was something that sprang to mind, even though I can't really claim it as my own, but it's something that the centre that I work at has been involved in, along with particularly colleagues at South East Sydney Local Health District. So. Yeah. So what is the centre you work at? So, um, the centre I work at is the larger centre is called the Centre for Primary Healthcare and Equity. Um, so essentially we do a lot of research to do with care in the community that involves general practice, community health but also more local and regional and policy initiatives to deal with health equity concerns. Um, I'm director of what we call a hub within it. So essentially we've got a series of um, local collaborations with specific local regional health organisations, which we call local health districts in New South Wales. Uh, the one that I'm buddied up with is called South East Sydney Local Health District. And we do a lot of work around integrated care, primary health care, um, and community health with specific reference to things like multimorbidity, um, priority populations, you know, um, and interestingly oral health as well is a, is a big line of uh, research for us. So there's three other hubs um, and so they encompass places like Southwest Sydney, Sydney Local Health District and, and uh, so we've got a bit of a geographical and a bit of a service reach. Um, as well as having those hooks with the university itself. So. Yeah, and how did these get set up, these partnerships? Because I think partnerships like this are hugely important in public mm. health. And mm. how did you become involved? Yeah, um, so the history is quite a long one. And I think we are a little bit um, unusual, if not unique, uh, in terms of the nature of this collaboration. Because um, really, they go back well over 20 years to the first of the hubs called the General Practice um, Unit uh, in South West Sydney, was set up as a partnership between the university and the local health district to look at general practice and primary health care research with a training component and, and uh, health service development component. From there, another unit grew out, which is called the Centre for Health Equity Training, Research and Evaluation, and is more aligned with population health issues. And so essentially they grew organically, but it's been a good model. and. Um, those uh, groups band bandied together with the Centre for Primary Healthcare here at the university to try and build a bit more critical mass, essentially, and that was in the early 2000s. And since then, there's been the development of one at Sydney Local Health District, the Health Equity Research Development Unit, um, which is part of population health in the local health district, and that was about four or five years ago. And my centre, which we call SEARCH, the Southeastern Research Collaboration mm, Hub. It's a good acronym. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a bit deaf by acronyms in this space, <laughs> but um, uh, was formed about uh, three years ago. So, so it's, from my perspective, it's, it's a good model. I think it means that that translational stuff is hard baked into the sort of governance and the mission, but also kind of the attitude of the workplace, you know, that really I am as accountable to the local health district because they help to fund my position as yeah. I am to the university, even though I'm appointed through the university. Yeah. That sounds great. 
It is, it is, but it's tricky as well, as you can yeah. imagine. You're sort of a servant of multiple masters, but the reality is that everyone is, uh, you know, no one has just one boss, or if they do, I'm envious. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and how did you sort of end up in this space? Did you ever think that you'd end up an academic? Not really. So when I started out, I, I didn't do particularly well at the end of high school, so I decided not to go to university. I went and um, studied uh, community welfare at TAFE, actually. And that was a really fantastic hands-on grounding in basically practical issues people face trying to live their lives, you know. So I um, did a bit of work in mental health in that, in that training and through that course, a bit in community development, um, a little bit in drug and alcohol. And it just gave me, gave me a really good flavour of what it's like to be in social services, essentially. And, um, and I think it gave me a bit of a direction because I didn't find that through, you know, high school. I was never someone who was going to be a, destined to be a public health researcher yeah. or something like that. <laughs> they don't really no. teach public health at high school. <laughs> no, no. Mind you, parenthetically, this, this is a tangent, but I'll keep it brief. When I started out, there, people were never... Um, really aware of public health or the social determinants in any sense but I've noticed a change over the past 15 years of having contact with people like the medical undergraduates or other students and so on. People are coming out of high school with a bit of a familiarity with the idea of a social view of health you oh, know. that's good. And I think some of that it, it took me a while to figure out what was going on but actually some colleagues who worked at the university um, in particular Associate Professor Marilyn Wyatt had actually done some work in the late 90s, I think, about how can we get health in a broader sense built into the PDHPE curriculum. So I've actually seen over time that shift. So yeah. you're right, they don't teach public health, but at least there is a broader conceptualisation of health, which actually, oddly, makes a difference when they show up as yeah, undergraduates. Yeah, that's great. So I think it's good to, yeah, there's a lot of things I wish I'd learned in high school. That yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so essentially, I went from that community welfare sort of grounding then decided to do social work, so I did that for a while and came and worked here. Uh, came and studied here at the University of New South Wales. Um, and I was really fortunate to do it at that time because social work is quite old as a profession, um, much older than most of the other health professions, goes mm -hmm. back well over 100 years. Um, but it has it's resisted, I think, uh, narrow codification or scope of practice sort of issues that... Um, crop up a lot in, you know, what's your job and what's mine in, amongst health professionals. And so that's meant that in the health context, social work's role has often been quite narrowly construed as, you know, the form fillers, the problem solvers, yeah. you know, how are we going to get this person discharged? But the scope of um, what I learned about was quite broad and it really helped to reconcile that sort of uh, personal and psychological component with the broader sociological sort of imagination. So that was really valuable for me and it, um, you know there's something in social work they used to speak about the person in environment and I think that understanding of a person as an individual but in the broader environment was really important but has really stuck with me through everything that I've done since then so it sort of gave me a bit of a you know your disciplinary training I think is somewhat important because it gives you insights into how you sort of understand the world and how you frame things as issues or problems or not you know yeah. so I was quite it, it sort of happened accidentally but that was quite fortunate and then I drifted into as you mentioned uh, policy and social research over time and then ended up working for the university uh, 
for about a 10 year stint starting in the mid 2000s and then went and worked in the um, private sector as a public policy and evaluation consultant mostly. How did you find that? Do you think that built skills that you are really valuable and you use now? Yeah, yeah. Um, so if I had to think about the skills that I use on a day-to-day basis, a lot of it is from that time rather than necessarily my research training, including yeah. my PhD, but also my social work <laughs> skills. <laughs> I draw on a lot. And that's things like group facilitation, discussions with people and so on. But um, yes, in response to the query about consulting is that you are working in quite a different context than university research. The pressures are, you know, more, more commercial. And so yeah. that's quite useful. The things you learn out of that is you get exposure to a broad range of work quickly. You get used to working hard and valuing time, which is kind of tricky because unless you have to account for your time, it is quite hard to learn that skill. Um, now that I don't have to account for my times quite so actively, it is a total luxury, <laughs> you know. But um, I, I think I did learn stuff from that period. Um, I got to be involved in a broad range of health service planning and health service development work um, at both state and commonwealth levels. And I was, really, I was fortunate, really, to be involved in that range of work. Um, and so I think it's that ability to structure and run research projects as being quite useful and, and just the range of experience. Yeah. And can I just ask, I'm going to hand over to Paige to talk about social media in a minute, but something we get asked or I get asked quite a lot in terms of when people contact me about the podcast is sort of transitions and, you know, different places to work in public health. Was it difficult to transition back, you know, with things like in academia that are important, like your paper count and your track record? How did that work, having that time away and then coming back? Um, so essentially uh, an opportunity came up at the research centre in South West Sydney that I used to be working at and, um, and I thought, yeah, I'm probably ready to do that. So yeah. um, I, I think it's hard to do in ways that aren't opportunistic. I think the yeah. path from industry back into the academy is a hard one, um, largely because exactly as you say, mm. the metrics that matter are pretty crude ones. So I think the challenge is keeping research active while you're away from yeah. research. Not to pretend that I was enormously productive in those years, but I was still publishing and being yeah. involved in things. Um, is hard, but it's. I think there is probably a bit of a, a path that needs to be encouraged, which is how do we have that hybrid researcher? I mean, we've got aspects of it in clinical health service, uh, clinical health space, um, to a greater extent, you know, the, the conjoint appointments or the, you know, the, the clinical appointments and so on. But they're n- usually mostly available for people at more senior levels and yeah. the pathway's less clear at, at lower levels. So I think, um, you know, thinking about ways of staying in touch with researchers, pitching in and research activities, having those adjunct honorary appointments, but making them meaningful, it, it's hard. It's gonna be work and unless it's something you sort of enjoy it will be hard to sustain. Um, yeah, I, 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 my own trajectory and journey was probably more like it was never really staged or planned. Yeah. Really, a, a sort of zigging and zagging. Yeah. Really, but I'm, 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 I'm well. I'm glad that I zigged and zagged. And um, so, so I think that pathway is tricky. Uh, I think increasingly, you're seeing jobs crop up in universities that aren't straightforward. You know, like you'll be, you know, primarily teaching focused role and you'll have these responsibilities and this narrow range of uh, interests. 
often it's more project-based stuff that might be linked to, you know, practical considerations around how you can, would gather and analyse data and so yeah. on. So I, I think there is a certain amount of creativity required, but it's also about sustaining that interest and those connections as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I think it's a it's sort of a difficult space, but thank you for your tips because, as I said, yeah, we do get asked that a lot. Oh, and I get a lot from the master's students yeah. are concerned about this, and you know. It's not easy, but then again, I, I think um, the reality is if you think about most people's careers outside of university or you know um, even more traditional public health settings, there is a lot of zigging and zagging that goes on. I think um, I don't feel like I'm in a strong position to give anyone advice or anything like that, but it, it is worth thinking about. You know, when things present themselves, you're going to have to be a bit brave a few times and try stuff. It might not always work out. Yeah. You can make mistakes. Um, I guess. The thing there is to learn quickly yeah. know, in those circumstances. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So I might throw to Paige now uh, to cover social media, which is something we'd really like to talk about. Yes, yeah, so you've got a pretty big social media presence, especially on Twitter. Sure. Um, first, I just want to know how you kind of differentiate between a personal and professional um, persona on Twitter and, and if you have even um, some things, especially that when you tweet controversial things or... Yeah. Stuff like that, kind of how you yeah. balance that. Um, I guess, if I'm being brutally honest, I probably don't differentiate that much. I'm I'm fairly candid about things. I think people online would have a pretty good sense of what I'm like as a person. And I think that can be kind of tricky because it gets at the bigger issue of, like, how do we differentiate the personal and the professional? Um, Obviously, you don't want to carry on like a total goose, you know, um, in your in your social media dealings. But my critique and perception of a lot of academics, on particular Twitter, because it's a short medium, it's broadcast to the world and so on, is that they are extraordinarily dull. You know, they're just boring. <laughs> so why would I be interested in finding... And so it's not that I'm trying to be in any sense deliberately controversial or anything. I'm pretty... Like, there are, there's a lot of stuff I think that I don't tweet. But um, I think there is some value in actually being candid about who you are and so on. And the reasons for saying that there's value in that is that, yes, people might be more willing to follow you. But also, my experience of being... You mentioned Twitter, which is something I sort of fell into, really, 10 years ago or so, about now. Gee, that's a long time. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, Really, it was it was a mechanism during a time of career transitions. I was, you know, finishing off my PhD, moving out of university setting, kind of an isolated time in life. It was sort of an interesting yeah. new thing to try out, and it sort of it speaks to me. I, my my usual um, line that I wheel out is that Facebook's for low functioning extroverts and Twitter's for high functioning introverts. <laughs> so as a high functioning introvert, I like to flatter myself. It meant that I could sort of engage with the world on my own terms, yeah. and you know find out what was going on but also um my experience of twitter i'm conscious is probably a little bit different to some others as well because you know i'm conscious as a, as a white bloke i get a pretty easy ride on twitter you know i don't get harassed on on any level in a sense uh, I, I do actually uh, we can come to that um, <laughs> there's a good public health story about that um but um but my experience is not the same as i'm conscious of like you know women, younger people of colour and stuff like that who do cop a lot of flack from just random. So my experience was also I joined at an earlier, friendlier time. You know, it's been an, an easier ride. 
Um, but also it's been my way of creating communities of interest, you know. So actually a lot of my professional contacts, people I'm collaborating with now in, in research, got a sense of me through some of my candor, I think, on Twitter. And they're the people I like. They're my friends, you know. So you, why wouldn't you work? And they happen to work in a similar field, you know. So it's, it's a way of taking those weak, you know, connections and strengthening them over time. So for me, it's been a, a positive thing, I think. Uh, I still get abused by randoms on a daily basis. Notably, um, I seem to have captured the eye, ongoing ire of e-cigarette advocates. Because um, uh. <laughs> I must be like, even though it's not my particular area of research, I've become known as the anti-e-cigs guy on Twitter. So I'm, you know have to mute at least 10 or 12 people a day who sort of um, harass me about that. But even that's interesting. I mean, I feel like we've got to be part of the public discussion. And if we're only approaching it from a risk perspective, you know, being worried about, oh, this might not look good. Um, you know, we're missing out an opportunity to sort of advance our case. And, you know, industry's not backing away from, from these sort of yeah, platforms. Yeah, I think that is such a good point. I've had that conversation a lot since Trump... Sorry, Paige. It's okay. She didn't vote for him, but she's American. That's why I said sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I realised that, yeah, I think that's something that I need to learn more, that I spend time with so many like-minded people that I just start to think that the whole world thinks like me. And I think it is important to be talking to the people that have the different views because mm. that's where we're going to make changes or try and understand where they're coming from. I think that's a really fabulous point. Yeah. Thank and, you. And not that we'll win them over even, but just you need to understand, understand where them, yeah. their concerns are coming from and how they're framing it. And I think uh, at first I was fairly cons fairly concerned that there seemed to be a bit of astroturfing, you know, fake grassroots organising um, online about E6 as an example to go back to. But over time, I mean, I think a lot of these people are sincere that they, that they feel like, you know, using E6 has been a uh, a powerful method for tobacco cessation for them and they become these sort of really um, vocal advocates. And so it's interesting, even though I don't necessarily agree with the promotion of e-cigs um, in any sense, um, it's interesting to see the rationale and why these people come to these things. And it's, it's really understanding, you know, the other side. It's, it's a profoundly powerful thing. And I think it is a real risk often in the context that we're working in, even in the broader health sector, we're often driven by very similar human values yeah. that until we've brushed up against people who don't share those values, it's really, it, you know, we're easy to sort of, it's easy to consider that we're doing a good job until we really push, try to push the boundaries a bit and then you realise, oh no, not everyone does think the same stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting. That's a good way to look at it. Um, good take on social media. Are there any tweets that have gone kind of viral or have been really popular that you weren't expecting them to be? Or what are kind of your most popular oh, yeah. subjects? Um, so I guess that's, that's the other thing is I don't really have a particular subject in this space. So I am myself, I've got a range of interests as a human being. So I try and reflect that. Um, it's reflected. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably a bit too random. Uh, Simon Chapman and Becky Freeman from Sydney University wrote a paper a few years ago about who uses Twitter, and they generously put me in the, um, uh, I'm trying to remember, uh, Twitter user brackets non-focused or something <laughs> like that is, uh, in that category. So I think for me, um, yeah, the areas that I do get traction on and not necessarily always particularly health service research or public health related. Um, the one, the tweet of mine that took off probably, there's 
two that I think got a lot of traction, oddly. One was about, I found a, I can't even remember how I came across it, but I was, was trawling JSTOR about an old journal article, and it was one about um, books that were bound in human skin or something like that. Oh. Gruesome, but of course, Twitter loved it, so that got <laughs> spread like thousands and thousands of times. And the other one was, um, interestingly, a tweet about um, the visual impact of wind farms, which was just a photo of this open, uh, open cut coal mine with a few wind farms on the horizon that you could barely see. And again, not particularly public health related, but got a lot of traction. So um, yeah, so I think it's sort of hard to predict what um, what's going to take off. And I think that's part of what seems a bit scary or risky to people. I guess yeah. it's um, probably a degree of foolhardiness or, you know, not really always um, letting the risk sort of uh, dissuade me that lets me I can tweet as much as I do. So, um, yeah, but it is, uh, they're the ones that sort of surprise me when they took off, that's for sure, yeah. And so would that be advice for people who are trying to grow their sort of social media, um, I guess, platform, you know, to network with other people in public health, to be a bit brave when they post things? Any other advice? Or? Yeah, I mean, yeah, don't do stuff that'll make you look like a goose is always good advice. Um, so good, don't. Good life advice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I probably should take advantage of, uh, take heed of my own advice. Um, <laughs> but I think the other thing is um, have a bit of conversation, interact with people. It is an yeah. interactive medium that people often don't take advantage of you know so actually ask the question you know often if I read an interesting journal article I'll track down the the person on Twitter and so on and say oh, I enjoyed that idea. Yeah. You, you can send them an email but that's probably more reflective of my attention span yeah. is to, um, <laughs> limit it to well 280 characters now um, and um, you know so I think you take advantage of the interaction um, yeah I mean if if it's something you'd be interested in might that's I figure that's the kind of thing that other people might be interested in as well. That's know? my whole strategy with this podcast. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and, and I mean, it is that curator's sort of dilemma, and I'm essentially not a curator. Essentially, I don't really restrict myself too much, but I do try and stay, um, you know, limited to the things that I think would be of interest to other people. And yeah, that engagement aspect is quite important. You know. Excellent. Do you have any final questions, Paige? I think there's maybe one question left that you like to ask. Oh, good segue. See, she's, this is only a second podcast interview and she already knows the drill. I'm very, very impressed. Yeah. Um, so I like to finish with asking people about their favourite book or something they've read that's really inspired them or changed the way they've thought about the world. Sure. But that makes it sound really serious. It can just be like the last book you read and yeah. really liked. Oh, no, I can actually answer that. And try and um, make it not too long because I read them and someone suggested War and Peace last time. Oh. <laughs> and now it's on my bookshelf. <laughs> Um, so actually I can give you three books because they're actually my children are each named after some reflection of those three books. Excellent. So, um, so my daughter's name is Harper and she's named after Harper Lee, mm -hmm. so To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, is a, I would is love to name my child that name yeah. if I ever had a child. Well, <laughs> unfortunately I named her back in 2009 and then it, it, we got constantly, oh that's a weird name, that's odd. And then in uh, in 2008, I should say, and then in 2009, the Beckhams named one of oh, their children. Oh, yes. yes. and so now it's all, Sorry. oh, did you name her after the Beckham? Just like, oh. Anyway. Beckham's <laughs> named theirs after yours. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So Posh and Bex have got something to answer for. Um, 
my son's called um, Nye, um, named after Nye and Bevan. So um, I'd recommend all of his works, but in place of um, hope and fear, he is a he was a, a Welsh politician who was largely responsible for shepherding through the National Health Service into into existence. So. Um, amazingly inspirational stuff but also incredibly important stuff that saved you know hundreds of thousands of lives excellent that sounds like a good one and my youngest son is called um, Carson named after uh, Rachel Carson who wrote a book called Silent Spring which essentially was the book that gave rise to the modern environmental movement so that's um, you know you can find copies of that floating around as well so. excellent yeah. that's those are very good answers <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Really appreciate it. And thank you for helping, as always, Paige. Um, And I will speak to you next time on Stories in Public Health.